This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she got over, she and her husband got $180,000 in business loans forgiven from the PPP program. She said it's completely unfair for us to forgive student loans for working and middle-class Americans. Representative Vern Buchanan of Florida said our plan was reckless. Guess how much he got in that program, forgiven? $2,300,000. This is not a joke. Can't make this stuff up. Republican governors wrote me, wrote me a letter saying this relief was only helps the elite few. You all know you're the elite few? I knew you were really special, but know you're the elite few. I'm serious. Ted Cruz, the great senator from Texas, he said it's for slackers, quote, slackers who don't deserve relief. Who in the hell do they think they are? And that right there, my friends, is how it is done. We just watched President Joe Biden go on the offensive against Republicans who condemn them for their hypocrisy when it comes to student debt relief and also called out how idiotic it is to suggest that student loan forgiveness is elitist. I've talked about this on the program before. The White House has even shared this stat, but 87% of student debt relief recipients make less than $75,000 per year. So to pretend as if this is something that disproportionately benefits elites. It's demonstrably untrue. But the problem is that Republicans are very good at messaging. They all get on the same page. They all repeat the same talking points and it sticks. They've monopolized discourse election after election in this country when this party should be politically irrelevant for how extreme they are. So what Biden is doing here is very important. And you saw the way that the crowd responded. They actually reacted well to Democrats going on the attack. It's time for Democrats to, to stop tucking their tail between their legs and start going after Republicans like this and naming names. The problem, I fear, is that it comes a little bit too late because the election is less than a month away. It's just weeks away now at this point, believe it or not. And Republicans have seen a lot of momentum. Now, why is that? There's a number of reasons, but I think it's because once again, Republicans have been able to monopolize discourse. They're talking about the economy. They're talking about inflation. They're talking about things that affect Americans. And when they're able to set the narrative, it's because Democrats have not sufficiently put them on the defensive. So let me just remind you what happened over the summer. Republicans were forced to play defense over their extremism on Roe and how unpopular that opinion was with the United States. Now, on top of that, Democrats, I think, did better by forcing House Republicans at least to vote and prove how extreme they are when it comes to marriage equality, the right to contraception. And for the first time in a very long time, Republicans we're having to play defense and prove to the American people that they're not extremists, which 
was difficult to do. And at that time, they were doing poorly in the polls. But time has passed, the anger has died down, and that's because Democrats have let the anger die down. Biden needs to make it even more clear than that. What's at stake here? If Republicans retake control of the House and the Senate, then you could lose student loan relief. You could see cuts to Social Security and Medicaid. That is what is at stake. And sure, is it fear-mongering as a means of galvanizing voters? Absolutely. But people should be afraid of what Republicans have to offer because this is an extremist party that poses a threat to democracy. So if fear isn't a motivator in this instance, then how could it ever be? Republicans are extreme, but yet they force everyone to vote out of fear because of the bullshit that they drudge up. Fake hysteria over what's going on in classrooms, fake hysteria over transgender people, and it's not okay. So Democrats have to instill fear in voters because this is a genuine time where fear is warranted. And if Republicans win, we could lose a lot. One of those things being student debt. NPR explains a federal appeals court has temporarily blocked President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, halting any debt from being erased. But the administration is encouraging people to continue submitting their applications. The Friday evening ruling comes less than a week since the application portal went live. Already nearly 22 million people, more than half of qualifying borrowers, have signed up. The administration could have begun processing applications and changing loan balances beginning Sunday. But now they can't do that, and it's because the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals has decided to temporarily block this program because Republican-led states are arguing that the student servicing industry, they could be harmed by student debt relief. So let me remind you, Biden in that video talked about how Republican governors sent him a letter saying that student debt cancellation is elitist. But here they are. We have at least six states participating in a lawsuit so that way they can block student debt relief on behalf of student loan servicers. Those states include Arkansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, and South Carolina. Now, we don't necessarily know whether or not Biden's program will be blocked entirely by the court. If it reaches the Supreme Court, I don't have high hopes that they will protect it. But Democrats have to make it very clear. If you want student debt relief to stick, you can't let Republicans win. Otherwise, if the court does block this, then how are we going to take legislative action if they control one chamber of Congress? It's already going to be difficult enough with Democrats in control, with obstructionists like Manchin and Cinema. But if they take control of one, one branch of, uh, of Congress and the courts block student debt relief, that's it. You lose it. So do you understand what's at stake here? And that's not all that's at stake in this election. Biden made it very clear that if Republicans win, well, they are broadcasting right now. And it's true that they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. Take a look at what he had to say. Republican leadership in Congress has made it clear they will crash the economy next year by threatening the full faith and credit of the United States for the first time in our history, putting the United States in default unless unless we yield to their demand to cut Social Security and Medicare. You heard that one, right? You all heard them say that. That's what they're saying. Let me be really clear. I will not yield. I will not cut Social Security. I will not cut Medicare, no matter how hard they work at it. Folks, we know what the Republican Congress will do if they regain power. They're telling us. They're being straight up about it. They're going to repeal lower prescription drug prices I just signed into law and raise drug prices. They're going to cut Social Security and Medicare. 
They'll pass massive tax cuts for the wealthy, make them permanent, but they're not now the individual tax cuts. They'll threaten the very foundations of the American economy if we don't meet their demands. Now, that is really, really important. The problem is that even though Biden has his bully pulpit and he's finally using it, we need all Democrats to do the same thing, to repeat what he's saying, because that right there is very important. Not just have a strategy of fear, because we should fear the, the Republican Party. Absolutely, we should. But also what you're going to do, what your program is going to be in the event you retain control and expand your lead in the House and the Senate. So the way that Republicans operate is you never just see one person saying something. You see them all in unison saying the same thing. They have their talking points rehearsed. They go on every single news program. They repeat it. They have propagandists and the media repeating it. And so it's really easy to see the way that they're able to easily monopolize discourse, right? But with Democrats, you see a point be made that's really fantastic, and then they move on. You see an attack. And then you don't see that very often. But with the way that Joe Biden and to his credit, Tim Ryan have been going on the offensive against Republicans, I think that this needs to be done everywhere. Democrats have got to get on the same page and they've got to all say the same things because that is something that could help them get Republicans on the defensive. Make them defend their remarks because understand Republicans, I think, have been clever at sidestepping the abortion issue because that's not a winning issue for them. And they, they've just focused on the economy. I mean, aside from transphobic attacks and issues with regard to CRT and whatnot in schools, they also have been talking about the economy. Now, they don't necessarily state what they want to do to fix the economy. They'll just say, hey, the economy is bad. And they're doing that strategically because that is a losing issue for Democrats because Typically, the economy is going to be uh, blamed on the president, regardless if the president has a lot of control over the economy or not. The president and the party in power always takes the blame. Republicans know this and they're savvy enough to talk about the economy. But what Democrats have to do is put them on the defensive. Again, explain what are you going to do? I mean, they're admitting what they want to do. Ted Cruz on The View today talked about how uh, inflation is so bad and it's hurting people. When they asked him, well, what do you want to do? He quoted Milton Friedman and hinted at austerity, which would hurt Americans. So you can't just let them monopolize discords. And Democrats are finally, I think, starting to get it. But my fear is that it just comes a little bit too late. They need to have Republicans on the defensive. Okay, so this is the takeaway from this video. What Biden is doing is good. I don't want to pour cold water on this strategy because I think it's effective, but we need all Democrats to get on board and we need all Democrats to repeat this message and go on Fox News and repeat this message. Go into right-wing territory and repeat this message. Don't be afraid to talk to right-wing voters and explain the way that Republicans are lying to you. Explain what's at stake if Republicans actually retake control of the House and the Senate. Medicare, Social Security, these are on the chopping block. Student debt relief, that's going to be a question. Will it stick? We don't know. So, yes, it is a strategy of fear. But when Republicans have utilized fear as a motivator for voters, Democrats would be stupid to not understand that fear isn't just necessary, but it is warranted in this circumstance. Republicans are as extreme as they've been throughout my lifetime. So in the event they take control of at least one branch of Congress, imagine the damage that they could do, the distractions that they could put up to stop the government from fun functioning. In the Senate, if Republicans retake control of the Senate, they control the court appointments. In the House, they could 
create a bunch of dumbass impeachment inquiries into Biden that are completely frivolous. But nonetheless, they have the subpoena power if they take back the House. They need to lay it out for voters and make it clear that if Republicans win, all these issues that you're feeling right now, the pain of inflation, high gas prices, this isn't going to get better under Republicans. So they've got to make the case, put Republicans on defensive, and most importantly, not only defend and brag about what they've accomplished, but they have absolutely got to make it crystal clear that they're going to deliver for voters. And then more importantly, they have to actually deliver. They've done some things that are absolutely good but they've got to go further than that, okay? Because the reason why Republicans are so compelling to voters in the first place is because people are actually hurting right now. And when you are desperate, when your material well-being has been in jeopardy, taken away from you, when you have no wealth, well, you are more susceptible to radicalization. And if somebody comes along and tells you what's causing your pain, be it immigrants or trans people in schools, or just the Democrats' economic policies, they're more susceptible to believe you because at least it's an answer. It may be the wrong answer, but it's still an answer nonetheless. And so Democrats have got to make the case and do more of this. Put Republicans on defense. There's no reason why they should not be on defense 100% of the time because this party is extreme, they are trash, and they are an actual threat to American democracy. So everyone should be voting against this disgusting party and, and Democrats have got to make this clear. So we're starting to see them shift strategies. It may come a little bit too late, but still, this is what they should have been doing for years. And I hope that it pays off, but unfortunately, I feel like it just may be too late. But either way... This is what they have to do, more of what Biden just did. Because Donald Trump has faced zero legal accountability at this time over his lies and incitement of an insurrection following the 2020 election, while he's continuing to lie about that election, and his attack on democracy would be harmful in and of itself if it were just limited to the 2020 election, but he's expanding his claims of fraud. And he doesn't even have to do that to see the proliferation of fraud claims being spread. I mean, we talked about this story by NPR where GOP primaries have already devolved into many Stop the Steal debacles, and that's without Trump's involvement. But with his involvement, 2022 is already proving to be a disaster. So what he's doing is he's already plotting to challenge the results of the 2022 election. You know, the one that hasn't taken place yet. Yeah, he's already trying to undermine that. Now, a reasonable person might ask, well, hang on a second. Won't that undermine his claims of election fraud if the election hasn't even taken place yet, but he's already plotting to undermine it? Won't his voters see that he's lying? Well, sure, in a reasonable world, but that's not what we're operating with here. This is a political faction that doesn't base their political views on data or statistics or even observable reality. They just take what Donald Trump says and they run with it as if it's gospel. And so we're going to talk about the ways that he is planning to undermine the 2022 election and things that he's doing in particular states that he's already targeting. So the Rolling Stone reports in recent months, Trump has convened a series of in-person meetings and conference calls to discuss laying the groundwork to challenge the 2022 midterm election results for people familiar with the conversations tell Rolling Stone. In these conversations, pro-Trump groups, attorneys, Republican Party activists, and MAGA diehards often discuss the type of scorched earth legal tactics they could deploy. And 
and they've gamed out scenarios for how to aggressively challenge elections, particularly ones in which a winner is not declared on election night. If there's any hint of doubt about the winners, the teams plan to wage aggressive court campaigns and launch a media blitz. Trump has been briefed on plans in multiple states and critical races, including in Georgia, but Pennsylvania has grabbed his interest most keenly, including in the Senate contest between Democrat John Fetterman and the Trump-endorsed GOP contender Mehmet Oz. If the Republican does not win by a wide enough margin to trigger a speedy concession from Fetterman, or if the vote tally is close on or after election night in November, Trump and other Republicans are already preparing to wage a legal and activist crusade against the election integrity of Democratic strongholds such as the Philly area. So this is officially a GOP strategy. Challenging election results is what they're going to do whenever they lose elections, and they're going to specifically contest the election in areas of Democratic Party strongholds like Philadelphia. It's just predictable. I mean, it's it's something that we all suspected would happen, but everybody hoped maybe he would just be narcissistic and only care about his own election. But no, this is also kind of about him. I mean, he endorsed Mehmet Oz, so he doesn't want it to seem as if his influence is waning. So he has this interest in challenging the results in states where his own endorsed candidates also fail. And that's what it's seemingly looking like he's going to do. So I, I cannot emphasize how destructive this is to democracy. If he just said the 2020 election was stolen and left it at that, that would be harmful, as I stated at the beginning of this video. But he's not just doing that. Every single election going forward will be challenged by Donald Trump. Now, it's going to be challenged by Republicans, as we've seen with GOP primaries, but Trump is able to amplify these claims of fraud because nobody has the influence and the clout that he has in the Republican Party. So even though it's damaging when individuals like Doug Mace Triano or Kerry Lake say that the election was stolen and there was fraud, it doesn't hit as hard as it does when Trump says it. And this isn't something that occurs in a vacuum. This has severe consequences for elections in the United States. It's killing our democracy. Now, as a result of these claims of this environment of paranoia that Republicans have already fostered, we're seeing voter intimidation in ways that should alarm every single American. For example, ABC 15's Nicole Grigg shared this video from Mesa, Arizona, where two armed thugs in tactical gear with weapons were watching a voter drop box. Now, at a different location, armed thugs were photographing voters' licenses, but they blocked out their own so nobody could photograph their licenses. So when a woman actually tried to lift the cloth to take a picture of their license, they grabbed her and they chased her. Now, security camera footage captured a different voter in Arizona being harassed by these thugs who were accusing him of committing fraud. And what was his crime? He just dropped off his ballot at one of the legal ballot drop boxes. Take a look. Uh, this is essentially security camera video from a parking lot, Anderson. I want you to take a look at it. And first, it doesn't appear to be anything unusual. It's a voter who is pulling up to drop off his early ballot at a drop box. His wife is in the vehicle. But then he pauses and he looks off, and it appears he's talking to somebody uh, off the screen. We will learn, if you look at the complaint, that it was eight to ten people. Then that voter in the security camera video gets in the vehicle and backs out of the parking lot. 
the reason why, if you read through the complaint, is he wrote that the people he was engaging with were, quote, filming and photographing my wife and I as we approached the Dropbox and accusing us of being a mule. More on that in a second. And that they took photographs of our license plate and of us and followed us out of the parking lot. That mule reference, Anderson, is referencing a conspiracy film that is often quoted by far-right conspiracy websites and by some right-wing Republicans who are running for office in the state of Arizona. Anderson? So uh, what about the other allegations? Yeah, a total of three that you reference have been referred to the Department of Justice. And if you look at them, they all have the same thing in common. They're referencing these people, uh, varying numbers at two different drop boxes in Maricopa County, people sitting in lawn chairs. And then some say they are camo clad, that they are intimidating, that they have a clear intent to intimidate. Now, listen, if they're just standing more than 75 feet away from the drop boxes, that's fine. That's their legal right. If they want to be weirdos and watch the drop boxes, they can do that. That's their right as American citizens. But what we're seeing here is not them just watching the drop boxes. We're seeing harassment. We're seeing actual voter intimidation. And this right here is what kills democracy, because think about the effect that this has when people see these news reports. Would you honestly feel comfortable with these armed thugs watching you drop off your ballot, potentially confronting you when you've done nothing wrong? Well, of course not. Who would feel comfortable under those circumstances? So the goal here is to dissuade people from voting. And that is going to be the intended effect. So when you have widespread claims of fraud, anytime a Republican loses their election or whenever Trump says, when you see voter intimidation happen out in the open like this, this is not a climate that is conducive to a healthy democracy. So I need people to understand, and this is going to sound hyperbolic, but it's not. We are witnessing our democracy dying before our very eyes. These claims of fraud can't keep persisting. In the event Trump claimed that there was fraud and Republicans who also cried fraud lost overwhelmingly, especially after seeing January 6th, I'd say that there's hope for our democracy. But at this point in time, the buy-in just is no longer there. Voters are believing the claims of fraud despite the lack of evidence. They're believing that their votes no longer matter, which is encouraging them to take up violence, as is the case with January 6th, or to intimidate voters who they suspect of doing fraud. It's just deeply, deeply troubling, and this can't last for very long in a healthy democracy. Like, we're seeing democracy die before our very eyes. And part of the problem is that Democrats did not do enough to secure voting rights. So all of this, this climate of paranoia, the voter intimidation, the stop the steal debacles at the GOP primary level, this is all going to amount to even more voter suppression than we've already seen. And things are just going to continue to spiral and get worse, all because of this one narcissistic piece of shit who couldn't admit that he lost the election because he bungled the COVID pandemic. That's what killed democracy, ultimately. Just one man, one cult leader who refused to admit for his own ego that he lost this election. Now, if our country was in a healthier state and people weren't so desperate they wouldn't have been susceptible to that level of radicalization to begin with. But again, at the end of the day, he's the one who has taken the biggest 
hit at our democracy. That's not to say that the courts haven't contributed. That's not to say that Republicans haven't contributed. That's not to say that Democrats in their own ways, at least at the primary level, haven't contributed as well. But Donald Trump has done more so than anyone in all of our lifetimes to undermine democracy than anyone else. And it's genuinely alarming. And the worst part about this is it's only going to get worse. In November, it's going to be a disaster when we see mass claims of fraud across the country. But 2024, when he's running for president again, just you wait, it's going to get even worse. If you thought that 2020 was bad, 2024 is going to be a lot worse. 2020 was a walk in the park. So it's going to continue. Trump will run for president again. And whether or not he wins or loses, there's going to be claims of fraud and it's going to get worse. So understand, people, this is very serious. Democracy is dying before our very eyes. And if we all don't take action, and I don't even know what kind of action, perhaps we convince our relatives who are conspiratorial, stop the steel-minded people. But I mean, if we don't try to save our democracy by further consolidating democracy and expanding democracy, we're not going to have a democracy for much longer. Senator Ted Cruz did not have the best weekend. In fact, this weekend was very difficult for Ted Cruz. So he went to New York to watch a Yankees game and he didn't receive the warmest welcome. As you can see by this picture here, there were multiple people who were flipping him off to his face. One person was giving him a thumbs down, although this gentleman decided to snap a selfie with Ted Cruz and there were others as well. But I wanted to highlight this picture because it shows you that Ted Cruz's head is literally twice the size as the average human's head. It's, it's very bizarre. Are. But it got much worse for him because, as you're going to see from this video, he was booed and insulted by attendees, and they were ruthless. And this was so satisfying to watch. so good that was food for the soul that was uplifting for our spirits and watching that honestly made me so happy it, it put a smile on my face honestly if it were anyone else i would feel a little bit bad I, I would feel sympathy for them but because it's ted cruz i felt nothing nothing whatsoever nothing but satisfaction that is but no sympathy for ted cruz um now it got worse for him because the next day he decided to go on the view to promote his shitty new book and you would think that in a TV studio, you'd be insulated from hecklers. But no, on The View, he was met with more hecklers, this time protesting him over climate change. If you look at inflation, the, the Nobel laureate economist Milton Friedman explained that in the United States, inflation has one cause and one cause only. Now. <laughs> now. In, inflation in the United States has one cause and one cause only. 
and that is when the federal government spends too much money. Okay. We have seen trillions and trillions of dollars spent by Joe Biden and the Democrats. Just last year, last year the federal government took in $4 trillion in tax revenues. Most money in history we've ever taken in. The problem is we spent nearly $7 trillion, and that's what's We do cover climate here, guys. Me. We do cover excuse climate. Excuse me, ladies, ladies, excuse us. Let us do our job. Let us do our job. We hear what you have to say, but you gotta go. You gotta go, you gotta let us do our job. They weren't even protesting you. You gotta let us do our job. I couldn't even hear what they were protesting. Now, in a just world, politicians like him would see that everywhere that they go. You go to a Yankees game, you get heckled. You go to a TV studio for an interview, you get heckled. And as he was getting heckled, I don't know if you caught this, he was citing Milton Friedman, calling for austerity in response to inflation. So inflict more pain and suffering on Americans who are already suffering. And earlier in the interview, we'll get to this a little bit later, he talked about how Americans are suffering at the gas pump with inflation. And yet, what is his response? Oh, austerity, that's going to help the situation. It's just these are ghouls and these Republicans, many politicians, not just Republicans, they should never see a peaceful day again in their lives because of how much pain and suffering they inflict on people. But that's not the reality of the situation. But when it does happen, I think it's cause for celebration. Now, the humiliation didn't stop there for Ted Cruz because Anna Navarro, of all people, who's usually pretty milk toast, she asked him a question in a very ruthless manner. The framing here was pretty savage. And she asked him about Ted Cruz still kissing Donald Trump's ass after he called his wife ugly. Take a look. Donald Trump went incredibly personal when it came to you. He suggested your father may have been involved in Kennedy's assassination. <laughs> yeah. And he called your wife, Heidi, ugly. Who, by the way, is very pretty. This is what you said. Let me get through the question. This is what you said about him back in 2016 during the campaign. Let's take a look. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. This man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth. The man is utterly amoral. It, morality does not exist for him. Yeah. So I have to ask you, because, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Cuban man. Mm -hmm. I frankly don't know how you get over your wife being called ugly. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you get over those kind of calumnies against your father. But you obviously <laughs> have gotten over it. Today, you sing a very different tune. So tell us, were you lying then or are you lying now? Mm. <laughs> That was embarrassing. Still don't feel any sympathy for Ted Cruz, but um, that was definitely embarrassing. And it's not like this is the first time he's been embarrassed. He's embarrassed his, his self. This is the guy who liked porn on his public Twitter account on 9-11. So, I mean, the man is a fucking joke. He's a clown, right? But we're going to switch gears a little bit because I think that there's a lesson to be learned from this interview with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, I think, answered that question here, and that's what we're going to watch, in a way that is, I hate to say it, persuasive. And even though it's Ted Cruz, the tactics here are what I want people to pay attention to, because what he did was he gave an answer to a question that even if it's him, even if it's disingenuous, I think that it's going to land with individuals who are voting for them. Now, we might think that Ted Cruz is a clown, because he is, but the people who vote for him don't think that he's a clown, and I think it's because if you try to see past all the smarmy, uh, all the smarminess, you can see that this is an individual who he knows 
how to bullshit. And even though we see through it, others don't. So watch this response. I think this was actually a masterclass in how to um, get out of anything in politics. Yeah, that's that's a loaded question there. Look, it's an, it's an, I think a lot of people have the same question. It's a very different Ted Cruz that we're seeing. We are. I mean, would you not agree that that's very different Ted Cruz than, no, than today's what Ted Cruz? I, what I would say is this. In 2016, we had a primary where Donald Trump and I beat the living crap out of each other. I'll tell you, Heidi laughed when he said that. My father laughed. By the way, my dad didn't just kill Kennedy. He's got Jimmy Hoffa buried in the backyard. It was idiotic. And... We went after each other, and at the end of the day, he won. And I had a decision to make in November of 2016. He'd been elected president, and I got a responsibility to represent 30 million Texans. I could have decided my feelings are hurt, I'm going to take the ball and go home and not do my job. But if I was prepared to do that, I better be prepared to resign from my job because I have a responsibility. So what I did is I, is I went and said, listen, we have an opportunity to make a difference for this country. And I want to roll up my sleeves and lead the fight to actually deliver on promises. We were talking a minute ago about the incredible booming economy. We saw 7 million people get off of food stamps. We saw poverty dropping. We saw African-American poverty dropping. We saw Hispanic poverty dropping. Those are real results that make a real difference. And I'm proud of that record. And, and why did I choose to work with him, even though I was pissed off at what he said? Because I had a job to do and I had a responsibility. Look, love him or hate him, and I hate him. That was a good response. That was absolutely, undeniably a good response. So listen, I think that a lot of people see through Ted Cruz. They see through the bullshit of these Republican politicians. But the problem is, even if most people, I'd argue, see through Ted Cruz, see how fake and disingenuous he is, those people aren't the ones voting. The people who are voting, they actually think that Ted Cruz apparently is respectable and honest. And it's not that these people are stupid, even though many of them are. It's that they're being duped by folks like Ted Cruz. And they're being duped because they are masters at deflection and obfuscation. So I want to show you an example and why I think that politicians like Ted Cruz, not necessarily Ted Cruz himself, but politicians who are Republican in general are successful. So he's asked a question about abortion and the economy. Watch the way that he deflects. I think that this is masterful and Democrats need to learn from this here. Senator, the economy and reproductive rights seem to be the two driving factors in getting people out to vote this midterm season. What's your answer to voters who say economic cycles are to be expected? They're a fact of life. But it's fundamentally un-American that a woman's rights could fluctuate from state to state. Well, I'll say, number one, if you talk to people across the country, as I'm doing, I'm in the middle of a 17-state national bus tour right now, people are hurting. Lives of, of working men and women across this country have gotten really hard. They're seniors who've seen their 401ks drop 20, 25, 30% in the last two years, who can't afford food and rent and their mortgage. They can't afford basic expenses. And people are upset. I mean, the highest inflation in 40 years is making people's lives a lot harder. When you see someone wait in line to fill up the tank on their gas and they can't fill it up, they got to put $10 or $20 in. People are hurting. And I think if you look at the polls in pretty much every state in the country, inflation's the number one issue. Crime is the number two issue. And illegal immigration is the number three issue. And in all, all three of those, this administration's agenda has been a train wreck. They are masters at deflection. And as you notice there, he didn't even touch the issue of abortion. He cut straight to the heart of it, talked about the suffering of the American people as if he actually cared. Now, we all see through it, but the people who are voting, at least in Texas, they don't see through it.
So as much as we all hate Ted Cruz, I think that we need to ask ourselves, why are politicians like him more so transparent and smarmy setting the agenda? And it's because of the rhetorical tactics that they use. If you notice there, rather than being put on the defensive about abortion and his party's extremism on this issue, he put Democrats on the defensive, forced Democrats to respond to the record 40-year inflation. Of course, that's got to be the Democrats' fault, right? Because they're in power currently, and the party in power is always blamed when there's an economic downturn. So this is what Democrats have to do. They have to learn how to put Republicans on defense. They should never be in a position where they're the ones playing defense, especially given how extreme and fake this party is. Now, that's not to say that I think that Democrats are wonderful, but when you juxtapose them with Republicans, the differences are very, very clear. You have one party that is a threat to democracy that doesn't care about working people, but yet all they have to do is say that they care about working people and all of their extremism, their reprehensible stance on abortion, their bigotry, it goes out the window and voters just focus on that. Republicans are masters at setting the agenda. So as much as we all hate Ted Cruz, I think that it would behoove us to try to learn from them, learn from the tactics. You don't have to be disingenuous like Ted Cruz is and fake and smarmy like he is, but Democratic politicians absolutely should understand that the tactics that they are using are effective. And even if most people hate Ted Cruz and they shit on him and flip him off to his face, he is a politician who gets elected, and he gets elected in a very populous state like Texas, right? And it may be a red state, but still, we have to make other people see what we see when it comes to politicians like Ted Cruz. The fact that this man is electorally viable shows that Democrats have failed. So we've got to keep pushing to expose these politicians, and I think most importantly, Democrats, uh, elected Democrats, that it needs to be introspective and learn from Republicans and emulate their rhetorical tactics. I think that it would benefit them greatly if they put them on the defensive and went on the attack more often. And thankfully, we're starting to see that with Joe Biden and Tim Ryan. But it's got to be a strategy that all Democrats get on board with. Otherwise, it's not going to be effective. But I'll leave that there. Ted Cruz overall was shit on. But, you know, I think that there's some things that we can learn from him. But most importantly, the takeaway from this video is that I want you to get joy and amusement from Ted Cruz having a bad time and getting made fun of. Because, I mean, if that doesn't cheer you up and put a smile on your face, then nothing will. MSNBC political analyst Elise Jordan spoke with 10 Trump supporters in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, ahead of the 2022 midterm elections, and she's trying to gauge where they're at with regard to their belief in the big lie. I mean, a lot of time has passed since Trump told his big lie in 2020, since the January 6th insurrection, and we have a lot of new information, more details. So how far have they come? How far have they progressed? Has their opinion changed at all? And the answer, as you're going to see, is deeply, deeply disturbing and depressing, quite frankly. Doug Mastriano was at the insurrection and he was photographed breaching one of the restricted areas. Is that okay? 
Which area? Because I saw a video where Capitol officers yes. were taking away barriers and unlocking doors, doors. For people. So, yeah. I mean, I... They opened the gates. So and it let shouldn't them in. be disqualifying for an elected official no, no. if they no, participated in January 6th. He didn't, he didn't strike anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol police. An unarmed officer. female veteran. Was That's the only one that died. That's well, the only one who died. A police officer did die. No, he it was a stroke. That's not. That's not, not on site. Caused by that. That's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman. So what do you him. make, though, overall of January 6th? I mean, it was watching that footage. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the walls and it was, our, you know, it's the Capitol. That it looked a true. lot like Antifa's actions. Yeah, it looked a lot of, except on a much smaller scale, it looked the same as the Black Lives Matter riots. That's it's what I saw, the similarities to being. Minneapolis burns, Kenosha burns. But so it's okay Rocket just because, burns, just because like, one side that you no, disagree with? I'm saying okay Antifa infiltrated. It's good for one, it's good for the other. Anybody I don't who harms anybody, way. anybody who caused property destruction, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, but if you're there making side. your voice heard at the right. people's house, no less, yeah. that, I, that's, again, it's a fundamental constitutional right of an American citizen, and people should not be being held political prisoner uh, because of it. For misdemeanors. That's I mean, East Germany. That's East Germany. Tactics. Yeah, that's what's scary. It was an actual fiery, but mostly peaceful protest. And the other ones that were the opposite. Was the protest legitimate our, in your eyes administration, I feel like, is using it as their Reichstag fire. Yeah. That's exactly what they're using it as. Mm -hmm. Do you think that President Trump could have quelled the violence that day? Not him personally. I don't think no. so, no. I don't think so. It started while he was still speaking. I was actually there. I, I, I was there to, to see what I thought was going to be the last time I ever saw Trump, the little Diana. So did he tell everybody to go and, and start riding? No. I didn't think so. No, and, and it actually, um, I, I, I stayed for the whole speech, like a ton of people did. Mm -hmm. And then we all headed to the Capitol because he said, let's go to the Capitol and, and peacefully, let, peacefully let our voices keyword. be heard. And we get to the Capitol, and we're like, what the hell's going on? Because it had already happened. I'm pretty sure I saw Democratic operatives instigating people to oh, cross totally. barriers. You were there that day. Yeah. What do you think? No, I mean, why, why, why would he tell people to do that? Why, why, why did the people who did that not wait around for him to tell them to do that? He said that around the end of his speech, if I remember correctly. It happened before he even said that, I believe. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, I think they, the timeline, didn't he speak? Because he was back at the White House and then he tweeted. So he yeah, tweeted. Yeah, well, after. People were still there. And stuff, yeah. But, it's, but it started while he was still speaking. And, and, and they talk about the fact that, oh, he didn't do anything for this amount of time. It's like, well, he was giving his speech and. He Why did know Nancy Pelosi it? deny his request? Actually, we have several here. thousand National, National Guard troops. Yeah. Well, it actually isn't in Pelosi's power to deploy National to, to Guard. Well, she's Speaker of the House. She has no authority but, over but, that whatsoever. And but, frankly, I think that's a good thing. But well, then, but even so, isn't she was, in charge of security? If there was the that Capitol, great of a risk that she Not was Nancy. offered them, then why didn't she? Uh, Preemptive, preemptively beef up Capitol Police, right. what she does have this the authority to do. Capitol Police are there. 
but apparently they were taken off guard. Yeah. That was so incredibly demoralizing to watch because the health and well-being of our democracy hinges on people like that. Whether or not we can go forward as a democracy in this country, that is going to hinge on whether or not people like that wake up. And they don't seem intelligent enough to be introspective at all or actually accept facts. They're just brainwashed. It's a cult and they refuse to believe anything that we've all learned. Like if you go back to the videos that I did in January of 2021, where we looked at what Trump voters were saying about the insurrection and the big lie, you can compare that to right now and it's virtually indistinguishable. They're saying the same things. The talking points haven't changed at all. They're still saying it's Antifa. They're still saying that Democratic Party operatives instigated the January 6th insurrection. Nothing has changed in their mind. They haven't adapted with new information. They've tuned it all out. And do you understand why that's so troubling? In order for democracy to survive, we have to have people buy into the process. We have to have people accept that our elections are being conducted in a free and fair manner. But they don't believe that. And it's not like this is just a small handful of people who believe in this fringe conspiracy theory. This is a substantial portion of the GOP base. A Monmouth poll from late September found that 61% of Republicans don't think Biden won the election fair and square. Now, Yahoo News and YouGov conducted nine polls over the course of the January 6th hearings, and they did find that the hearings put a dent in the amount of Republicans that they surveyed that believed in Trump's big lie. But the dent is very, very small. It went from 66% of Republicans believing in Trump's big lie down to 60%, a six point drop, and that's it. We're not talking about a 30 to 40% drop, we're talking about a 6% drop. And other polls taken in summer show that public opinion, at least where it counts with Trump supporters like the ones we just watched, wasn't moved at all by the January 6th hearings. So the question is, and this is not a question that I'm asking in a rhetorical sense, I'm asking because I genuinely don't know the answer to it, how are we supposed to go forward as a country? How can democracy survive? We're not even to a point where we can debate these Republicans on their deranged ideas. We can't debate them about the dumb fuck trickle-down economic theories that they continuously support election after election that fuck over themselves. We can't even get to that point. They still don't even believe that the elections are safe. I, I, <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Like, look at their answers here. So they didn't think that it was disqualifying that Doug Maestriano was at the Capitol on January 6th, and he's a gubernatorial candidate blaming Antifa. Uh, they don't blame Trump for the insurrection, despite seeing his words. Uh, they think that Nancy Pelosi denied Trump's request to send in the National Guard, and they thought that she was in charge of security at the House. They don't blame him for doing nothing because they believe that, I guess, the insurrection took place while he was giving his speech or in the small duration of time between his speech and him getting back to the Oval Office. Like the timeline doesn't make sense. What they're saying doesn't make sense. All you have to do is think about it a little bit and their timelines don't really add up. Their numbers are off, but nothing. They're brainwashed. This is a cult. So how are we supposed to go forward as a country when we have one of two major parties with the majority of their base being in a cult.
did these people seem intelligent enough to be introspective and change their opinions, admit that they're wrong about anything? No, these are dumb people. Sorry, it's crass, but it's true. These people are too far gone. They're stupid. So we are crossing our fingers and hoping that these very stupid people stop believing in stupid lies so that way we can at least have a democracy. Maybe our democracy doesn't function very well. Maybe we need to do things to consolidate democracy and make it better, expand suffrage, right? But we can't do that unless these stupid people stop believing in stupid lies. But they're not going to do that because the main culprit, Donald Trump, is the leader to be their nominee again. So the question is, what do we do? There's no answer to that. But I can tell you it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look good for American democracy. These lies are dangerous. Democracy cannot withstand these lies, these claims of fraud. And if you look at other countries, democracies break down, democracies die when authoritarian politicians and leaders and demagogues start using these lies to consolidate power because they can't win legitimately. So watching this panel was deeply unsettling because nothing has changed in the event since 2020 and 2022 we had a substantial number of republicans not all of them but most of them go from believing in the big lie to rejecting it or at least questioning it i would feel a little bit more optimistic but because so many republicans haven't changed their mind at all i just i feel deeply demoralized and i fear for the future of democracy in this country and even if republicans did not believe that the election was stolen like think of how easily it is to distract them right you can get them to support politicians who want to cut taxes for the rich and cut social services like social security and medicaid but voters get distracted by the dumbest things like crt or gender studies in elementary schools which is not happening but it takes just a little bit to distract them they're like cats with a string right you just dangle it in front of them and everything else fades away into the background they have tunnel vision i just i don't know what to do like this is the result of the republican party since the 80s with ronald reagan continuously pushing and pushing and pushing to the right pandering to more extremists and now we're to a point where extremists have taken over the republican party the monkeys have taken over the zoo and now democracy and all of us may suffer because of it, because of these stupid fucking people who refuse to wake up and see the light. So as a progressive myself, ideologically, I align the most with the Congressional Progressive Caucus in Congress. However, they are functionally politically irrelevant because I think of the leadership currently, and we're to the point where they've now embarrassed themselves, I think, for the third or fourth time this year. And if we don't see a leadership change in this caucus, then I just don't know how anyone going forward is going to take this caucus seriously. So what am I talking about? Well, as Politico explains, House progressives on Tuesday retracted a letter calling on President Joe Biden to engage in direct diplomacy with Russia less than 24 hours after it sparked intense backlash from other Democrats. The about face comes as Democratic lawmakers vent their fury that the letter backing talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin, originally drafted and signed in June, wasn't recirculated before its public release on Monday. That release made it appear that the 30 House Democrats who signed on, all lawmakers in the roughly 100 member 
Denver Congressional Progressive Caucus were urging the Biden administration to push for diplomacy immediately despite Russia's engagement in war crimes and indications of a military escalation against Ukraine. Jayapal said she accepts responsibility for the embarrassing flub, adding that the timing of the letter caused a distraction and was conflated with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's recent suggestion that Republicans might pull back on Ukraine funding if they win control of the House. The letter to Biden was released without the knowledge of many Democratic lawmakers who put their name on it, several people told Politico, speaking candidly on the condition of anonymity. So there's so many aspects about this story that I find genuinely embarrassing. To issue the letter and then retract it 24 hours later in and of itself is deeply, deeply embarrassing. And it looks like this caucus doesn't know what it's doing. Second of all, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is essentially apologizing for daring to call for diplomacy. Wait, isn't diplomacy a good thing? I mean, I get that they don't want to make it seem as if they're calling for appeasement with Russia, but diplomacy is a different thing than appeasement. And because this was supposed to be released in June doesn't necessarily change the necessity of diplomacy. We had evidence back then, ample evidence, that Russia was committing war crimes in Ukraine. So it seems as if they initially stood by their conviction to support diplomacy, but because of the political backlash, they're cowering in fear, which is just so bizarre to me. Diplomacy, again, I can't believe, uh, believe that I have to say this, is a good thing. I did a video talking about how I found it positive that the French president, Emmanuel Macron, was speaking to Vladimir Putin. He was giving us updates and insight about what's happening with the Kremlin. I think that that was a good thing. Even if diplomacy doesn't work, even if diplomatic talks fail, you can still gain some insight into his thinking, Vladimir Putin's thinking, that is. That doesn't mean, again, that you appease him and you give him what he wants, but just trying to engage in a solution or engage in negotiations is a positive thing, especially when we're talking about two nuclear armed powers, because peace is what we should be looking for above all. Again, that doesn't mean appeasement. These are not the same things. Diplomacy does not mean appeasement. Um, you could still condemn Russian aggression and support negotiations, diplomatically speaking. Um, so that in and of itself is embarrassing. But what's also deeply embarrassing is that Pramila Jayapal, despite her taking responsibility, is throwing staffers under the bus here. So if you look at the official statement released by the CPC chair, which is Pramila Jayapal, she takes responsibility but she still claims that the letter was released by staff without vetting, and she further goes on to explain that this letter created the appearance that Democrats are somehow aligned with Republicans on this issue. Okay, interesting. Now, just because she doesn't want it to make it seem as if she's aligned with Republicans, that's essentially why she's withdrawing this letter, seemingly. That's why they're withdrawing this letter, seemingly. But even if she's saying that she takes responsibility, you don't take full responsibility if you're still saying that this was released by staff without vetting because that's throwing your staffers under the bus. Now, after this letter was released, Ro Khanna, a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, seemingly took to Twitter to defend the staffer in question, saying, let me just say something about Mike Darner and CPC staff. They are extraordinary. They have helped shape the biggest goals for progressives and have been very effective in our wins. They are committed also to human rights and diplomacy. Progressives owe them a debt of gratitude. So he is seemingly defending the staffers who Jayapal is throwing under the bus. Now, another aspect about this story that's so bizarre is that this letter was sent around in June, but it's only being released in November. 
I mean, was there no urgency with you all to, to release this? It doesn't make any sense. Now, journalist Igor Bobig asked the question online, is it normal for letters to not be released until four months after members sign them? And Ilhan Omar actually responded, explaining, once in a while they do, and it's very frustrating. Once you sign onto a letter, it's up to the original drafters, and unfortunately, not all of them will keep folks updated. That's why some of us don't sign onto letters without direct insight into when or how it will be released. Timing is everything in public policy. Letters are written to respond to a moment, and in politics, moments pass in the speed of light. In this particular case, the letter was a response to intel we were getting on the war and the pathway forward. So, yeah, needless to say, not a good look for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And as I alluded to earlier in this video, this is not the first time that CPC leadership has fucked up, quite frankly. So last year with Build Back Better, I mean, corporate Democrats, they ran roughshod over the CPC. I mean, they were essentially politically irrelevant when it came to negotiations regarding Build Back Better, and they all, for a little bit of time, stood strong saying, we're not going to vote for bipartisan infrastructure until we get a vote on Build Back Better. They ended up buckling, and then they got fucked over, and what we got ultimately was the Inflation Reduction Act, which was much, much smaller than the original Build Back Better bill that they were all fighting for. So that was a failure of leadership. On top of that, CPC lets anyone into the Congressional Progressive Caucus, even if they're not even progressive, even if they take money from apartheid-supporting super PACs and large multinational corporations. For example, they endorsed Chantel Brown over Nina Turner, an actual progressive, despite Chantel Brown taking money from large multinational corporations. First of all, why was she in the caucus in the first place? Second of all, why would you endorse her over the true progressive here? Listen, I'll say this about Pramila Jayapal. She is somebody who I think is a good lawmaker. She's a good legislator. I think that her Medicare for All bill is the gold standard. Bernie Sanders' bill in the Senate is good as well, but hers has a lot more provisions that are better. We've gone over this before. I'm not going to get into all of that right now. So as a lawmaker, I think that she is good. She, she writes good legislation. But as a leader... She just doesn't have what it takes. As a leader, she's been a complete disaster. She has guided the Congressional Progressive Caucus into irrelevancy politically, and now they have no say because corporate Democrats know that the progressives will just go along with whatever they want. They'll buckle at some point. All you have to do is exert a minimal amount of pressure, and they'll go along with whatever you want. So there's no reason in even taking into account what they want because they're rubes. This is the result of leadership. So Jayapal must absolutely step down and we need somebody who should replace her. I think that person should be Ilhan Omar. And what they need to do immediately after Ilhan Omar takes power, clean house. Don't allow people like Chantel Brown and other corrupt corporate Democrats into the progressive congressional caucus because that waters down the progressivism there. It should be limited to people who do not take corporate money. It should be limited to people who have progressive stances on foreign policy, on apartheid, on Ukraine. It just doesn't make sense that we even have a Congressional Progressive Caucus if it's just a mixture of progressives and corporate Democrats who are simply trying to boost their progressive bona fides in order to help themselves electorally if they're in a very blue district. It's just, it shouldn't be a vanity project. So overall, Jayapal has got to go as the chair. 
I think that she should remain in Congress, obviously. Like, I'm not calling on her to resign. I'm not calling on her to be, you know, challenged by somebody uh, in a primary that's, you know, super competitive. I mean, if somebody wants to primary her, that's democracy. I'm not calling for that, though. I'm calling for her to step down because she is just not a good leader. She is a terrible leader. The thing about it, me and Adidas, is like, I could literally say anti-Semitic shit and they can't drop me. I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? Now what? Turns out that's not exactly true. Adidas released this statement today. Ye's recent comments and actions have been unacceptable hateful and dangerous, and they violate the company's values of diversity and inclusion, mutual respect and fairness. After a thorough review, the company has taken the decision to terminate the partnership with Ye immediately and production of Yeezy branded products and stop all payments to Ye and his companies. So it turns out Adidas can drop you, Ye. Now what? Now, this brand deal was so integral to Ye's wealth that as a result of Adidas dropping this brand deal with him, he is losing his status as a billionaire, as Forbes reports. Now, they go on to explain, without Adidas, Ye is worth $400 million. The remainder of Ye's fortune, Forbes estimates, comes from real estate, cash, his music catalog, and a 5% stake in ex-wife Kim Kardashian's shapewear firm, Skims. Losing Adidas was the final nail in Ye's net worth coffin. Gap terminated its Yeezy partnership in September, Earlier this month, JP Morgan reportedly unbanked Ye. French fashion house Balenciaga nixed their relationship with Ye on October 21st, just weeks after he walked their runway at Paris Fashion Week. And just yesterday, production company MRC said it would not air a completed documentary on Ye, and talent agency CAA, where Ye was signed, dumped him. So in other words, he is in the finding out phase after fucking around. Now, some people will call this cancel culture. I call it consequences, because even if we all have freedom of speech, none of us have freedom from consequences. And it turns out there is a limit to where these companies just don't want to associate with someone because they are bad for business and being overtly anti-Semitic apparently is bad for business. Who would have thought that? Now, it's not just that Kanye West as an individual is making these statements and they happen in a vacuum. That's not actually the case. This isn't just any ordinary individual. He has a lot of power and influence. He has access to a lot of big platforms. So when he says things like this that are incredibly bigoted, it has consequences. What he says ripples through society. For example, over the weekend, over the 405 in Los Angeles, Nazis hung these banners showing support for Kanye West, telling drivers to honk if they think that Kanye West is right about the Jews. And as you can see, they're all doing their little Nazi salutes. So what Kanye West did, quite literally, was embolden Nazis. In the same way that Trump emboldened bigots in this country, Kanye West emboldened Nazis and anti-Semites. So what this does is it sends a message to all of the bigots everywhere that their bigotry is still not welcome in society. Even if Kanye West for a moment made it seem as if it was socially permissible to come out of the closet as an overt anti-Semite, turns out, no, you can't really do that unless you want to be ostracized from society. And it's good that to some degree, bigots are still outcasted from society. We need to make bigots social pariahs. We need to make them afraid 
to espouse their dangerous, bigoted rhetoric. Because in a polite, civilized society, there should be no room for this bigotry. And if you are going to say bigoted things like this, throw an entire group of people under the bus, then there are going to be consequences for it. Again, you have freedom of speech, but not freedom from consequences. So I think that this is a good move and it's an obvious move because, you know, as much as Kanye West said with the White Lives Matter shirt and the support for Donald Trump, these brands still didn't drop him. So this kind of shows that like, you can go pretty far. You can push it pretty far until they finally draw the line. And thankfully, these businesses are drawing the line at overt anti-Semitism. Because if you don't draw the line here, then there is no line. You could just say whatever. You could just say straight up Nazi shit and still be accepted in society, still have business deals. And that's just not permissible. So we need to make it not profitable for people to be bigots because we need to disincentivize this sort of rhetoric and behavior. Now, Candace Owens chimed in and predictably, you're going to be surprised by this. I know she is defending Kanye West. She wrote this via Twitter. As a company, Adidas has every right to sever ties with whomever. That said, they better pay Ye. We are not going to witness Ye's intellectual property be stolen and his life bankrupted while being told black people need to shut up about it or suffer the same consequence. Too many black celebrities in my inbox telling me that they believe what is happening to Ye is wrong, but they are scared to speak out because executives are telling them to stay out of it. Livelihoods are being threatened right now over association. This is wrong. Corporate messaging over over the last four years has been that every black feeling is valid because black lives matter even though that resulted in our neighborhoods being destroyed now those same corporations are telling black talent to shut up or lose everything they have okay first of all i just don't believe you you don't know that many celebrities most celebrities and most people in general think that you're a joke the one celebrity that you know is Kanye West. We all know that because we've seen photographic evidence that you are indeed close with him. You even convinced him to buy your husband's failing company, Parlor. But the only other celebrities that I'm assuming she knows is like the actor who played Hercules, I don't remember his name, and the guy who created the Dilbert comics. But you don't know all of these celebrities, Candace. Stop pretending. You don't have that much clout. She's making it seem as if all of these celebrities in droves are reaching out to her specifically because they want her to console them about how distraught they are, that Kanye West was predictably canceled after saying these horribly anti-semitic things shut up she's trying to pretend as if there's this huge conspiracy if they want to say that kanye shouldn't have been fired by adidas or let go they can say that nobody believes that there's going to be any real consequences but to me it's just it's astonishing that the people who repeatedly shill for capitalism don't understand how capitalism actually functions these corporations don't actually care about any social cause shocker right all that they do is make decisions that are good for business and so turns out that supporting a movement that is against the extrajudicial murder of black americans by police officers turns out that's more popular than a celebrity who's saying disgustingly anti-semitic things of course they're going to promote a social cause that is popular and move away from somebody who's saying disgusting things like this. How is this surprising to anyone? I'm just surprised that this didn't happen sooner and they didn't sever ties with Kanye West after the White Lives Matter thing and the Trump support and whatnot. So, I mean, they give these celebrities a lot of leeway to say basically what they want to say. It's not like they're intentionally conspiring to limit the free speech of people like Kanye West. It's that he went so far past the line that nobody wants to be associated with him because Kanye West now is inextricably linked 
to anti-Semitism. So if you're associated with Kanye West, then you are associated with anti-Semitism, right? So why would you do business with somebody who hates Jewish people? He very clearly does not like Jewish people, right? So if you are a Jewish person, why would you buy Adidas when this brand associates with somebody who doesn't like them for who they are? I mean, it's a business decision, Candace. It's as simple as that. The fact that you, a capitalist, don't know this is pretty fucking embarrassing. But I mean, it's Candace Owen. So she's either lying or completely misled or misleading her audience. So everything that she says should be taken with less than a grain of salt because this person is disingenuous. This person is a grifter. But at the end of the day, I, for one, think that it is absolutely fantastic that Kanye West was canceled because I'm sorry. As I stated earlier, there should be no room for bigotry in modern society. So if you are going to say disgusting, reprehensible things about an entire group of people, then yeah, I'm glad that it's not profitable for these businesses to associate with you. As much as I hate capitalism, at least we're at this state where businesses will lose money. They will lose profits if they associate with explicit bigots. Now, they give a lot of people passes, right? J.K. Rowling hasn't been canceled despite her overt transphobia. There are other folks who say terrible things and they haven't lost anything. I mean, Dave Chappelle is explicitly transphobic and after said transphobia, he got more specials from Netflix. So they allow these celebrities a lot of leeway, but apparently there is still a line and Kanye West just managed to be the one celebrity that found that line. Does this mean that he's like permanently canceled? No, I don't think so. I think he's going to be fine. His net worth still is $400 million. He's no longer a billionaire, boo-hoo, but he has $400 million. He's going to be okay. All right. So I'm not going to shed any tears for Kanye West. In fact, I am glad that he is facing consequences for his actions, because, again, I want the message to be that we don't welcome Nazis and anti-Semites in this society. I want the message to be that if you come out of the closet as a bigot, well, people aren't going to want to associate with you. We need to create that disincentive so people choose to not be bigots. Now, how we dissuade people from being bigots. I mean, you could use the stick or the carrot approach. Either way, as a society, we need to be pushing back against that and disincentivizing it. And however we do it, to me, as long as it's, as it's getting done, I don't give a shit. So, good. I'm glad he was fired. I hope that if there's any other connections that he has business-wise, I hope that they drop him too. Fuck Kanye West. John Stewart released a snippet of an interview that he conducted with the Attorney General of Arizona, Mark Binovich, and this is going to appear on his show, The Problem with John Stewart, on an episode that is set to premiere on the 28th of this month, so just a couple of days away. And the entirety of the episode focuses on election integrity and fraud claims. And basically, in this interview, John Stewart is going to try as hard as he possibly can to pin down this Weasley politician. But as you're going to see, he's going to use every single rhetorical trick in the book. And it's just it's evidence that these people are incapable of being honest, even if they know that the facts are not on their side. So let's watch. And then I have a lot to say about this when we come back. Right now, we have about. I think almost 20 criminal cases related to the 2020 election. Out of 4 million votes. Yeah, no, I, I'm talking in facts, John. But the reality is, is there are millions of people, not only in Arizona, but people throughout this country that think the election is stolen. There's people that believe in angels, but that doesn't mean you launch an oh, investigation see, that angels changed but, ballots. Like, but, 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 a bit but, of a tautology. When you have a former president spreading rumors yeah. to his supporters, for instance, Trump can say, 
74,000 mail-in ballots received that were never mailed, magically appearing ballots. 168,000 fraudulent ballots printed on illegal paper. 36,000 ballots illegally cast by non-citizens. Now, the truth is, none of that was real. When it first came out, the Cyber Ninja said Joe Biden won Arizona. And then they got a lot of pushback, and then they started hedging and hawing. And then next thing you know, people were like, well, Brnovich needs to do something about it. And then it was like a hot mess. But you've responded by doing things about it. You've what I've done said is, you're still investigating. We've run, it, we've run a lot of the stuff to ground. And, now, when, I, and when you get it to ground, will you come out and say, Donald J. Trump is wrong. The election in Arizona was fair, not stolen, and not fraudulent. I have always been a straight shooter, and once, no, once all the facts and evidence are in, John, John, come on, man, I'm telling you. I, you have found no evidence that the election in Arizona was fraudulent or stolen from Donald Trump. Donald Trump lost Arizona, period. I've said that from the very beginning. There have been isolated incidences thus far that we've identified yes. and we are prosecuting. Yes. We still have some active investigations going on, but People but can draw the their main, own conclusions. There is we, no, no, people cannot draw their own conclusions. There, That's the point of the law. Yeah, it is. The law is that you have facts right. and you have fiction. Right. The fact is the election in Arizona was well run, not fraudulent, and not stolen from Donald Trump, according to even your investigations. I, I have never said. Why is it, it so hard to just say yes to that? I just, I guess because I've spent my entire, most of my career as a prosecutor, and we still have some ongoing cases. Let so in your way. mind, John. you still feel like after all this, you're going to discover no. a concerted effort to steal the election from Donald Trump and, and that it was fraudulent. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what I'm saying. So why can't you say the election in 2020 was not stolen or fraudulent. And we all know the answer to that. It's because it would be bad for his political career. Ironically, if he doesn't lie about the election, which is bad for democracy, then people won't vote for him, which is why people like him continue to pretend as if fraud was so prevalent in the 2020 election that it cost Trump the election when it did not. There is no evidence that there was fraud sufficient enough to tip the scales in Joe Biden's favor. The anecdotes that you can find are statistically insignificant. And oftentimes, those are Republicans who are guilty of voter fraud, but still in those limited instances, it isn't sufficient enough to change the outcome of the election. But they continue with this lie and it's not dying down. And if anything, it's getting a lot worse. Now, the most telling part was where uh, John Stewart pressed him to say, will you say Donald J. Trump was wrong? The election was fair, not stolen and not fraudulent after he concludes his little investigation. And his answer there was just insufferable. He said, I'm a straight shooter, but yet went on to claim that Trump lost Arizona, which seems like a concession, right? But no, because he didn't actually admit that he lost Arizona fair and square. So that's still leaving the door open. You can say Trump lost Arizona, but the implication is you think it's because of election fraud. So they're so weaselly 
Like the sleazeball refuses to admit what he knows is obvious, right? And one thing that these election deniers are uh, doing, which I think is pretty savvy, is rather than just addressing whether or not they think the election was stolen, they'll use this coded language. And when they're asked about it, did Joe Biden win the election? They'll say, well, he's the president, so he won the election. But that's not answering the question because you're leaving the door open to someone to interpret that as, oh, okay, yeah, he won because of fraud. But unless you say explicitly and unequivocally that Joe Biden won fair and square, you're pandering to these election denying Republicans. And they are explicitly pandering to election denying Republicans because, again, that's how you win a Republican election. We have seen what happens if you don't play Trump's game. Republicans get blasted by Trump and they go on to lose their re-election campaigns. So if they want to be in Congress as a Republican, they've got to play the game. They know this and they're cowards. They're absolute cowards. Now, out of millions of people, as John Oliver pointed out, he named 20 criminal cases of voter fraud. Does this seem like a vast conspiracy or statistically insignificant instances that have always existed within American democracy? And oftentimes, if you look at these criminal cases, the specifics probably tell you a different story. Maybe it's somebody who registered to vote when they weren't eligible or they voted when they weren't eligible, something like that. There's nothing that points to this vast conspiracy to tip the scales against Donald Trump. And it doesn't make sense because there are Republicans who cry fraud when they won their elections in states that Trump contested. So if there was fraud, why wouldn't they rig it totally? They just let a couple of Republicans squeak by. If you're already breaking the law, you might as well go for broke, right? If you concocted this vast conspiracy, but they don't think these things through. And I don't think that folks like Mark Minovich, I don't think that they believe the claims that they're saying here. I think that they know that this is what they have to say to appeal to Republican voters. And it's damaging. There's a lot of consequences of election lies. Like these lies don't happen in a vacuum. There are actual consequences for American democracy. The most obvious consequence is that this yields more election deniers. A recent analysis conducted by the Washington Post found that out of the 569 Republicans running for public office, 291 of them, that's a majority by the way, are election deniers. And 538 estimates that most of them are going to win their elections with 538 politics reporter Kaylee Rogers explaining very few election deniers are running in toss-up races. Toss-up races are rarer in general, particularly as partisan redistricting creates fewer competitive districts, but there are disproportionately fewer election deniers facing these kinds of odds than Republican candidates overall. Just four election denying candidates, 2% of all deniers are running in races that are currently deemed toss-ups by our deluxe forecast. Carrie Lake, who's running for governor in Arizona, Monica De La Cruz, and Mike Garcia, who are running for House seats in Texas and California, respectively, and Senate candidate Adam Lixalt in Nevada. Comparatively, there are 17 Republicans running in toss-up races overall or three percent of candidates and as you can see this is all represented in this graphic also courtesy of 538 which shows that election deniers will have a statistically easier time of getting elected than non-election denying republicans but it's not like having worse republicans get elected is the only consequence this also has an impact 
on voters. We just talked about voter intimidation in Arizona the other day, and now it's gotten bad enough to where after multiple instances of voter intimidation in Arizona, a restraining order has been filed against the group that was harassing and intimidating voters, photographing their license plates, accusing one voter of being a mule, and watching them with tactical gear on, with weapons, trying to intimidate them and probably dissuade them from voting. And the reason why they're doing this, the reason why we're seeing voter intimidation is because of these bogus claims of fraud that folks like Mark Binovich are making to appease the GOP base. So, you know, I'm glad that we have individuals like Jon Stewart pushing back. But the problem is that we never see this much pushback from regular journalists. Why is a comedian the one who's providing so much pushback against these Republican attorneys general? We saw last week how he went after Leslie Rutledge, the attorney general of Arkansas, after she helped facilitate this ban on gender affirming care. So why is it that comedians are doing the work of journalists, whereas journalists are just letting these Republicans off the hook. I've watched so many local elections in Oregon, just small races, and you'll have a moderator ask, do you believe that the election was stolen? And they'll have their answer, and then that's just it. There's no pushback, no further questions. Uh, like, that's it? You're not gonna go further than that and push them to actually admit that the uh, election by Trump was lost fair and square? It's genuinely infuriating that, that journalists aren't doing their job if the media was actually capable then there wouldn't be a single republican election denier who is viable but it's not just that the media is incompetent but we also have this right-wing media ecosystem that emboldens these claims emboldens trump when he lies about the election fox news newsmax oan so that's why we're in such bad shape as a country, because how can we even go forward as a democracy? How can we even have a democracy when one of two major parties is dominated by Trump sycophants who believe that the elections were stolen in 2020 and are going to be stolen in 2022? It's just deeply frustrating, but at least you have some folks like Jon Stewart providing us with some pushback that is well warranted, but something that should be much more common when it comes to these claims that are demonstrably false. Well, the first and only debate between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz just concluded, and I figured rather than waiting until tomorrow to put out a video on this, I just wanted to share my response right now, immediately after watching the debate while it's still fresh in my head. And I've got to say, you all know where I stand. I am rooting for John Fetterman and I despise Dr. Oz. Having said that though, trying to be objective and putting myself in the mind of an undecided Pennsylvanian voter, I've got to say, I think that this debate unfortunately was an unmitigated disaster for John Fetterman for a number of reasons. Now, the most pressing issue was very clearly that this debate was not very accommodating to him as someone who just recently suffered from a stroke. Giving both candidates 15 seconds to respond, that's just insufficient. I'm sorry, even for Dr. Oz, he could barely articulate himself within 15 seconds. But for John Fetterman, who isn't having an issue with cognition, but he's having an issue articulating himself, I think that that's very evident. He needs more than 15 seconds to respond at a minimum. This debate should have been longer 
and response time should have been a little bit more lenient given the circumstances here. If you want to accommodate somebody who had a stroke, you've got to do more than just add closed captioning. So I don't think that the format of this debate was great for someone like John Fetterman. In the event this were a town hall where you can casually take you know questions from people and it was a co-town hall with Dr. Oz, I think that would have been fine. But him agreeing to this debate... I think it's going to hurt him, honestly. I think that if you tuned in and you watched this debate and you were undecided, you're probably coming away thinking that Dr. Oz was the better candidate. But that's not to say that Dr. Oz did well in this debate. I think that if John Fetterman was fully recovered already, it would have been brutal for Dr. Oz because even with John Fetterman not operating at 100%, struggling to articulate himself, Dr. Oz came off as incredibly smarmy, incredibly disingenuous, incredibly pompous, and he refused to answer almost any question. Moderators had to ask him one, two, three times to try to pin him down and he still wouldn't answer the question. So it's unbelievable that when you have this huge advantage, you still somehow end up looking terrible yourself. But I think that he may just win by default because John Fetterman very clearly wasn't ready for this debate. I think that that's evident. And on top of that, if I'm talking about the format overall, the moderators were terrible. Every single question was framed from a right-wing standpoint. For example, the question on Social Security. They asked him about Social Security, and the way that the question was framed was something to the effect of Social Security is only going to be fully funded until 2034. Except, okay, why don't you tell us what happens after that? So by 2023, it'll be fully funded until 2035. It keeps extending. And even when it's not fully funded, it will pay out a majority of benefits. So the entire premise of the question is completely fraught and comes from this right-wing position. And that's not the only question, but it's just one of the most egregious examples that stood out to me. And it was just a disaster. Certainly, I don't think that Dr. Oz came out looking good, but I think he just came out looking better than John Fetterman, given the circumstances here that are really unfortunate. It was difficult to make out what he was saying. Like, he would say things, allude to certain policies or talking points that I know, but if you're just a regular voter and you're not as well-versed or savvy, you're not really going to know what he's saying. It was diff difficult to distinguish what he was saying. On top of that, from a policy standpoint, John Fetterman ran away from basically every single policy position with the exception of the filibuster. So Dr. Oz attacked John Fetterman for being an extremist. And essentially, John Fetterman took the bait and he ran to the center, with, which is just not good at all. So John Fetterman has historically supported Medicare for all. That is essentially socialized medicine. It's where you get rid of private insurance effectively. And he ran away from that, just saying, I want, you know, Medicare for all, or I want healthcare rather to be affordable. He said the same about colleges. You know, the progressive stance traditionally has been free college. But John Fetterman said, I want it to be affordable. When it comes to the issue of fracking, he's kind of flip-flopped on this. But historically, I actually just thought that he always supported fracking, which is one of the things that I disliked about John Fetterman. But apparently, in an interview that he had with Savage Joy, someone who I actually know, um, he said that he was against fracking. And this, by far, was the worst moment of the debate for John Fetterman. Let's watch. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking, but there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Oh, uh, I, I, I do support fracking and I don't, I don't, 
I support fracking and I stand and I do support fracking. Okay, thank you, Mr. Fetterman. That was incredibly difficult to watch, not just because I disagree unequivocally with John Fetterman there, but because I support him and I want him to win. But he just didn't have a response to this flip-flop here. And again, I didn't know about the flip-flop. But as bad as John Fetterman looked in that portion, he did not look nearly as bad as Dr. Oz looked when the issue of abortion came up. So they asked him three times whether or not he would support Lindsey Graham's bill on abortion. He didn't answer the question. The same was true for minimum wage too, by the way. He just wouldn't answer the question. But look at what Dr. Oz said. He, I can't believe he actually said this. He said this when it comes to who he believes should be making the choice when it comes to abortion. I want women, doctors, local political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive, to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. So abortion is a decision that should be made between the woman, her doctor, and local political leaders. That might be the worst take on abortion I've ever heard. And I can promise you, for all this talk of trying to be a balanced candidate and to bring back civility and to not be an extremist, that right there is going to turn off a lot of independents and probably a lot of conservatives as well who don't think that political leaders should be making decisions about our own personal health care. What an insane thing to say. On top of that, other demonstrable lies that Oz said was, oh, well, I um, wasn't selling bogus weight loss pills, even though we all know he was featured in ads for them. Take a look here. Did you or your company make a profit from promoting those products? You have 30 seconds. I never sold weight loss products as as described in those commercials. It's a, it's a television show, like this is a television show, so people can run commercials on the shows, and that's a perfectly appropriate and very tra transparent process. I ruffled a lot of feathers on my show because I told people the truth, and I'm proud of that, and I'll do the exact same thing as a U.S. Senator. It is inconceivable to me that you are a voter in Pennsylvania and you haven't heard about the way that Dr. Oz got busted for hawking miracle weight loss pills. That was a national story. It was huge. So for you to lie and deny your role in that, it's genuinely mind boggling that he didn't come up with a better response than to just deny. But I think that the saving grace for John Fetterman was that he brought up the Oz rule repeatedly. Whenever he's on TV, he's lying. And this is something that he kept pushing, which I think was really good. But back to some negatives about John Fetterman, uh, when it came to the question of medical transparency and why he won't reveal or release his medical records surrounding the stroke, and he just has that doctor letter clearing him, um, his response here I think was really bad. Mr. Fetterman, will you pledge tonight to release those records in the interest of transparency? You have 60 seconds. No. Uh, to me, for transparency is about showing up. I'm here today to have a debate. I have you know, spe speeches in front of 3,000 people in Montgomery County, you know, all across Pennsylvania, big, big crowds. You know, I believe if my doctor believes that I'm fit to serve and, and that's what I believe is appropriate. And now with two weeks before the election, you know, I have run a campaign and I've been very transparent about being very open about the fact we're in use captioning. And I believe that again, my doctors, the real doctors that I believe in, they all believe that I'm ready to be served. Follow up, I didn't hear you say you would release your full medical records, why not? You have 30 seconds. No, uh, yeah, again, my doctor all believes that I'm fit to be serving, and that's what I believe is where I'm standing. Yeah, when you're a voter and you're undecided 
and you're watching this and you can tell that he's very clearly struggling to articulate himself, then to see him not want to release his medical records, I, I think that that does raise a question. I mean, me personally, I don't necessarily care that much about medical records, but I think that other people are not like me where they want to know, okay, I see that you're struggling to articulate yourself. Perhaps they don't know that this doesn't necessarily hinder his cognition. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that that's not really going to reassure them. But despite that, I do think that there was some positive moments from John Fetterman. It wasn't all bad. Uh, I do think that this zinger about Bernie Sanders that he threw in there was really great because Dr. Oz kept bringing up how John Fetterman was an extremist like Bernie Sanders. And, and you know, he got in a good line. Take a look. He keeps talking about Bernie, Bernie Sanders. You know, three, year, three years ago, he was on his show and he hugged him and he said, I love this guy. You know what? Why don't you pretend that you, you live in Vermont instead of Pennsylvania and run against Bernie Sanders? Now, one section that is potentially devastating for John Fetterman, however, is where Dr. Oz brought up him pointing a gun at a black man and said, why won't you apologize? John Fetterman couldn't really articulate why he did that, right? He didn't defend himself. And so when Dr. Oz says, why not apologize then? It's a good question. Why not apologize? Why not try to right the wrong if you very clearly did something wrong? If this wasn't the result of you racially profiling, then I think we need further explanation. I think that people in Pennsylvania are owed a further explanation, right? And he said he was just protecting his community. Mm, sorry, that's not something that is very, um, very persuasive to me. Um, so that was, I, I think, really potentially devastating. But a moment that looked really embarrassing for Dr. Oz, conversely, is when he was asked about supporting Donald Trump and whether or not the legal problems worried him. And he literally had the audacity to say that he hasn't followed Trump's legal problems. I mean, just the sheer level of disingenuity from Dr. Oz is... It may be unprecedented. I mean, he is so slimy and so fake. He is genuinely lucky that John Fetterman was not operating at 100% capacity because if he was, it would have been really easy to demonstrate how fake Dr. Oz is. And for somebody who has been on television for, uh, I'd imagine, more than a decade, Dr. Oz himself said some really bogus, almost incoherent things. For example, he said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, that fentanyl is showing up in mailboxes and they're endangering the lives of children. What, like, what? What is that? What? Do you have any examples of this? The threat of fentanyl comes from drugs not being regulated by the federal government, where if you buy heroin, and they cut that with fentanyl, that's where it poses a danger to people's lives. This is why fear-mongering about legalizing drugs is so stupid, because if you genuinely fear fentanyl, then you can cut back on overdoses by having the government regulate drugs that are already going to exist. But Dr. Oz wants to embolden the black market by fear-mongering about my state's uh, decriminalization of drugs. Just absolutely absurd, and I wish that John Fetterman was at 100% so he could point that out. But overall, just to kind of put a bow on this entire breakdown here, my thoughts are a little bit scattered, but I just think that this was not good for both of them, for sure, but definitely more damaging 
to John Fetterman, and I wouldn't be surprised if the next couple of polls that we see show Fetterman down. Regardless if this debate took place or not, I would have anticipated the polls to continue to tighten because that's typically what happens as we go closer to election days. But I think that in the event this were to hurt John Fetterman politically and reduce his chances by like, or cut him down by like two to three points, I genuinely wouldn't be surprised. That's how disastrous I think it was. And again, it pains me to say that because I'm rooting for John Fetterman, even if I have a lot of really strong disagreements with him when it comes to policy. I don't like that he has shifted to the middle when he has historically been progressive. Don't run away from your progressive, uh, progressive stances. Challenge Dr. Oz and call him the extremist because he's the one who is endorsed by Donald Trump and all of a sudden, He's distancing himself from Trump and rebranding himself as more of a right-wing centrist, which is preposterous, right? So it's just overall, I don't think that this debate was a good idea for John Fetterman's team. I think that he would have done better for himself and his campaign to just not do this debate. But I think that that kind of goes against my principle that voters need to see these two uh, candidates duke it out. But it's difficult because they very clearly weren't willing to accommodate John Fetterman, who is still recovering from having a stroke. We'd be lying to say that he wasn't having trouble articulating himself. He very clearly was, and it's understandable because he just had a stroke. The fact that he is on stage right now is a minor miracle. But if you're going to have this debate, if you're going to agree to this debate, then the moderators have got to create a format that's much more accommodating. But then again, Dr. Oz came off so poorly that Maybe it's a wash. I don't know. I think that's wishful thinking, honestly. I think that overall, this is going to hurt John Fetterman. And I'm crossing my fingers that it doesn't hurt too much and that he has enough of a lead that there's some cushion there. But overall, now I'm really fearful that John Fetterman could lose this race. And I just hope that that's not the case. But this was just not easy to watch if you're rooting for Fetterman. So I'll leave that there. Really um, unfortunate, but that's the reality of the situation. I don't think that this is going to benefit John Fetterman. A second woman has now come forward accusing Herschel Walker of pressuring her to get an abortion. This woman was apparently the mistress of Herschel Walker when he was married and they were in a six-year relationship and she brings a lot of receipts. But first, let's get to the basic details of this story. Per Rolling Stone, the woman recounted the particulars of her six-year affair with the Georgia Senate candidate, claiming they met in the 1980s when Walker was playing football. She said the romantic relationship began in Dallas and that Walker regularly said he loved her and even promised her he was going to divorce his wife to be with her. The woman says she became pregnant in 1993 despite being on birth control and that Walker convinced her to get an abortion and gave her money for it. She says she went to get one but didn't follow through with it, after which an upset Walker pressured her to go back. Now, the details in theory should be devastating for Herschel Walker given that his base is largely comprised of right-wing evangelicals because you have two sins here. You have an abortion once again and adultery. Now, the woman is claiming that she's an independent politically and she supported Donald Trump, but she's calling Herschel Walker a hypocrite and says that he's not fit for office. So it just goes to show you that if there's any claims of this being a political hit job, it doesn't necessarily seem that she disagrees with Herschel Walker ideologically, just that she's coming forward because she believes that he's a hypocrite and he's not doing what he says he's doing. He's not living the way that he says he's living. Now, they come with 
Two main pieces of evidence. First and foremost, the woman's attorney, Gloria Allred, shared a photo of Herschel Walker allegedly on her bed in a hotel. Now, it's impossible to confirm that this is him through the video here, but hopefully they'll scan the photo so that way reporters can see it and dissect it. And they also shared this voicemail, which is allegedly from Walker. And this confirms that there was indeed a seemingly serious relationship between the two at some point. Let's listen. This is terrible. I'm calling from a uh, restaurant. They're the one who's got a phone that I can use that you can put something in and be able to call out. All the other phones, you have to have a, some kind of telecom card or something. I have the slightest idea what it is. But I wanted to call you on your machine and try to talk to you. What I can do is I'm going to try to call you back while I'm here, but I have to call you like early in the morning because it's late at night there when uh, I'm up and the restaurant is open. But I keep trying to call you. I want to say I love you. Okay. So it sounds like him. So I think that they've sufficiently established that they indeed had an affair. There was some relationship there. Now, in terms of the abortion story, she doesn't necessarily have receipts like the last woman had, but she does recount her story. And we'll listen to what she has to say here because she's very clear that she did not want to get an abortion and she wouldn't have done it had Herschel Walker not pressured her into doing it. After discussing the pregnancy with Herschel several times, he encouraged me to have an abortion and gave me the money to do so. I went to a clinic in Dallas, but I simply couldn't go through with it. I left the clinic in tears. When I told Herschel what had happened, he was upset and said that he was going to go back with me to the clinic the next day for me to have the abortion. He then drove me to the clinic the following day and waited for hours in the parking lot until I came out. He then drove me to get medications and supplies as prescribed and then drove me home. I was devastated because I felt that I had been pressured into having an abortion. After the abortion, I felt that Herschel began distancing himself from me. I fled Dallas within days after the abortion and did not go back to even visit for the next 15 years because I was so traumatized by what Herschel had put me through. So Herschel Walker wasn't just supportive of the idea of her getting an abortion. He pressured her into getting an abortion that she didn't want to get. Now, if you are an evangelical and you genuinely believe that abortion is tantamount to murder, I don't believe that, but this is what they believe, then how can you still continue to support somebody who is hypocritical? I mean, that's two abortions, two murders in your view, so doesn't this now make him a serial killer? I mean, if you think that these were two human lives that were taken and not just clumps of cells, then you have to admit that if you still continue to support Herschel Walker, you are supporting a serial killer at this point who murdered two babies, according to your standards, not mine. So will this hurt him? It's difficult to say. Certainly, there was a swing in support for Warnock following the last abortion story. As 538 reports here, on average, there was a three-point shift in favor of Warnock 
And whether or not this story will convince the evangelicals who haven't already been convinced, that's a different story for a different day. But it's hilarious to me how you have all these stories about the children that Herschel Walker had but didn't raise about the abortion, and he still has the audacity to attack his opponent, who is a literal minister, mind you, and claims that he's a sinner, who is not admitting that he's a sinner. Listen. So I'm going up against a minister who's a sinner. He's a sinner. Yes. And he got to admit it. He got to stand up and do what's right. A lot of people in Washington do what's right by the people that let them into office. But right now, they've forgotten about it. So in case you couldn't make out what he was saying, he said, I'm going up against a minister who's a sinner. He's a sinner, and he's got to admit it. Herschel. Take your own fucking advice. Are you serious? I mean, Republicans are so brazen at this point that despite overt hypocrisy that's in your face, they still say things like this and accuse the other person who they're running against of doing what they've done. You've now pressured two women into getting abortions, or at least you've pressured one of them. The other one, I don't know if she wanted to get the abortion, but the first one, I can't recall the details at the top of my head, but you certainly paid for the abortion. There's evidence of that. But with this one, the woman is saying that you pressured her into getting an abortion, and yet you're still claiming that Raphael Warnock isn't admitting to his sins. Because the assumption, if you're a Christian, is that everyone is a sinner, right? But you still haven't confessed all of your sins because we're still finding out more dirt about you, Herschel Walker. How many more abortions did you pay for? I mean, again, I've got to I've got to emphasize this point by the standards of evangelicals. What he did was tantamount to murder. So if they still go out there and they support this serial killer in their mind, then it seems like evangelicals aren't very consistent. This isn't about policy. This isn't about abortion. This is just about tribalism and their team making it to the Senate. So whether or not this hurts him again, I think that that's an open question because I think that anyone who was turned off by the abortion story, if they haven't been by now, they're probably not going to be convinced by a second story because there's a large number of Republicans who assume that every single story that comes out is essentially a manufactured fake hit piece by the fake liberal media. So you can't assume that this is going to have 100% impact, but will it make a dent? I'd imagine yes, but it's difficult to determine that because again, we're in a hyper-polarized state of politics where people aren't necessarily basing their decisions on the policies of the candidates. It's just, oh, you're a Republican? Well, at least you're not a Democrat. I'm voting for you. So we'll have to wait and see, but either way, I mean, this just doesn't look good for Herschel Walker, and he may be one of the biggest hypocrites to ever run for the U.S. Senate. But, I mean, being one of the biggest doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't others because there's a lot of hypocrisy to go around. It's just that maybe he's the most brazen about it. But either way, I'm not surprised by the story, to be honest. Thank you so much for your question tonight. No, I'm not through. But if you think I'm going to sit here and be accused of lies like that. Okay, we're back without Marjorie Taylor Green. You all ran Ralph. She's yeah. gone. Yeah, why'd you do that? She's gone. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared on a local television show in Georgia called Night Talk, and it didn't go too well for her because she was asked questions that were just too tough by callers and also by the hosts. And as you're going to see, she wasn't very happy about that. So first, let's watch this video clip of a caller grilling her over her stance on abortion. Now, you're going to see that she is visibly uncomfortable and she even tries to cut off the interview, but the caller just keeps going and it's just truly precious to watch. You, you talk about the, the uh, 
women's rights. Okay, you're blaming this all on the women. My body is my body, and I want. I don't want the government telling me what I can do with my body. Ma'am, are you having children anytime soon? I'm. Um, that's my question. I'm asking a legitimate question. And you're right. It's your body, but a baby inside a woman's womb is another person's body, not your body, and not my body. And that uh, abortion is murder of another human being whether that body is inside your uterus or, or not. But that is murder. I, I do not support the murder of another human being. I support life, and I will always stand up to fight for the lives of the unborn and, and life overall. Um, okay. But I don't, I don't think you're having children anytime soon. So I appreciate your interest in women's rights, but killing an unborn baby is not a woman's right, and that's not health care. Okay. If a child, if a, a, the 10-year-old child that was, that was the rape... What about then I think we should put the rapist, the a child the abuser. Be punished. The child can't have anything done to her without uh, the government going after him, fining him, and all that stuff. That's not right. A child abuser and a rapist should be put to death if they are doing that to a 10-year-old child. Number one, I think that should be our focus. That is a very rare, rare, rare occasion, so that should not be the, the entire premise of the argument on abortion. Again, ma'am, I know you say it's your body, your choice, but I don't think you're having any children anytime soon. I think we need to focus on the future of America, and that's our children, because they are our, they are our future. And the unborn, they're the, our future also. So let's focus focus on protecting their lives and, and instead of being focused on a lie that abortion is women's health care because that's not health care. Health care saves lives. Abortion kills a life. Thank you so much for your question tonight. No, I'm not through. I'm okay. going to focus on the fact that you... That put a giant smile on my face because it was so nice to see Marjorie Taylor Greene squirm because that's what she was doing. She couldn't actually adequately address the arguments that that caller was making. So what did she do? She just made it, made it seem as if that lady didn't have standing to address this issue because, well, you know, it doesn't concern you. You're obviously, based on your voice, too old to get pregnant. So, sorry, it's murder. Okay, first of all, just because that lady may be too old to get pregnant doesn't necessarily mean that this isn't an issue that concerns her. Perhaps she had an abortion because she needed to when she was younger. Perhaps she has grandchildren and children who she wants to have that right, that control over their own bodies. So who are you to tell her what she can and can't be concerned with? Marjorie Taylor Greene fearmongers about transgender issues and gender affirming care for trans youth when I don't think she's ever talked to a transgender person in her life. Nobody tells her that she doesn't have standing in that particular realm when she really shouldn't speak about that because she's not educated but still for her she could talk about anything but for this old lady sorry you shouldn't be concerned with abortion because you're not going to get pregnant anytime soon go fuck yourself marjorie taylor green now on top of that i love how she decides to kick it up a notch and just claim well it's murder abortion is murder is that so see i don't actually think that marjorie taylor green believes that abortion is murder because if that were indeed the case she would condemn her friend herschel walker who she is supporting in Georgia. Now, according to reports, he has allegedly pressured two women into having abortions. By her standards, Herschel Walker committed murder twice. At a minimum, he's an accessory to murder. Again, by her standards, not mine. So if she actually believed that abortion was tantamount to murder, she wouldn't support murderers. Would you support someone who actually committed murder? 
for public office? I know I certainly wouldn't, because if they committed murder, then I think that they're a terrible person. And even if they had good policies that I agreed with, they committed murder. So that overrides everything. So that's why I don't think she believes that abortion means murder, because nobody who's reasonable would support a murderer. So she's lying. She's being disingenuous because she doesn't actually have good arguments as to why the government should control women's reproductive health. Now, when it comes to exceptions for rape and incest, well, she apparently doesn't support that because she said that, oh, well, we should put abusers and rapists to death. Okay, but that doesn't solve the issue when you're still forcing their victims to carry those fetuses to term. How does that make it any better? They still are forced by the government to carry their rapist's baby to term. So do you think that putting their rapist to death is going to give them any more comfort when they have to bear their rapist child, Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's just genuinely insane. She says that abortion is murder, but yet she supports a murderer for the U.S. Senate. And she just she has no logical reasons to oppose abortion. So this is why she resorts to really bombastic rhetoric. But I want to move on to the next clip because the host, Judy O'Neill, very tepidly pushed back against her, didn't necessarily push back, but asked a question about her involvement in the January 6th insurrection, specifically the text that she sent to Mark Meadows. As you're going to see, she throws a complete temper tantrum and desperately tries to change the conversation. Yeah, uh, he was talking about the January 6th thing. I ran across this today. Don't know if it's true or not. You tell me. Uh, you text Mark Meadows ahead of January 6th on December 31st, although it's not clear from the records whether Meadows responded to it. He said, I'm Judy, here. Judy, I'm going to stop you right now. I don't know if those are my text messages. I really don't. I don't because I don't have those saved in my phone and I'm not going to talk about that stuff. Here's what's really disappointing about this entire show today. People are suffering every single day from inflation. People are dying every single day from fentanyl. People are upset because five million people have invaded our country. And do you know the city of Atlanta has higher murder and crime rates than Chicago and Detroit? That is shameful. But all I'm hearing, and you want to talk about January 6th, and people want to talk about January 6th, you know what that is? That is a pathetic attack and, and, and avoiding the real issues that real Americans care about. Do you really think January 6th is more important than Antifa and BLM riots? If so, my God, why is one more important than the other? Because the riots of 2020 were horrific and caused over $2 billion in damage. And so I'm not going to go and play games over, were these your text message? Did you say this? Did you say that? I absolutely will not do, not do it, and I'll tell you why. I did nothing wrong. And I was already put on a witness stand being sued by some New York group coming down try to take my name off the ballot, and that was wrong. That was completely wrong. And oh, so, my group? Did you say my group? No, I said they were from New York. Oh. They, they put me on the witness stand. You had to have seen all of that in the news. I'm sure you did. Um, but you guess what? The judge ruled in my favor because I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I'm the only member of Congress that sat under oath on the witness stand being charged with ridiculous lies. And so, Judy, I really appreciate your show and I appreciate everything you do here. But if you think I'm going to sit here and be accused of lies like that and lies like some of this garbage, no, I, I won't. Because it, I asked you if it was I'm not true. on trial. I didn't do anything wrong. I, I didn't say you were. How dare you be concerned about January 6th? People should care about the issues that I say are more important.
okay people have different levels of salience for different issues and january 6th was an attack on our democracy and you were a co-conspirator marjorie taylor green so that is very important it's not like the danger to our democracy is gone in fact the danger has increased because more election denying republicans are running for office and a lot of them are going to win trump is still not disqualified he can run for president once again and he's currently the leading figure on the republican side so to dismiss this is just weasley but she knows that this is actually a serious issue and she just doesn't want to talk about it because she was culpable there now all of this amounted to marjorie taylor green running away from the interview and we saw a little bit of the host's response at the beginning of this video but i just want to play the extended clip because um they talk a little bit about this and they seem pretty shocked that she left okay we're back without marjorie taylor green you all ran ralph she's yeah gone. why'd you do that <laughs> she's gone so um uh, we'll take your calls or comments or whatever you got to say but uh she left she said she enjoyed my show and she's through and got up and left so she's out of here nothing i can do about that okay i love that you skid her away <laughs> see this is what happens when you exert even a small amount of pressure on these loudmouth politicians they buckle they t they can't take the heat so they leave right now to be fair to marjorie taylor green her spokesperson is claiming that she didn't leave because she didn't like the questions that were being asked or because they were too tough she left because she was told that the interview was only going to be an hour i'm paraphrasing by the way and once her hour was up she decided to leave mm, i'm not buying that that sounds like cope to me it seems like you were very uncomfortable with the tough questions that you were being asked and you really can't be challenged because i don't think that you are intelligent enough to sufficiently stake your claims without being bombastic like you can't have a reasonable intelligent conversation with callers so you left you didn't want to address the substance you didn't want to take tough questions from the hosts so once your hour was up you used that as an excuse to leave i as someone who appear on people's shows frequently will go over right we'll plan for about an hour or two and sometimes i stay longer but she did not stay longer because it wasn't going well for her i think that's abundantly clear but either way you know i think that this is more just for entertainment purposes but i think that there's value in this clip because it shows why we all need to challenge these people directly right if you have a family member that's really loud and outspoken about the issue of abortion and they're conservative push back just a little bit and usually they don't know more than the talking points that they've heard from fox news there's no real substance there they're vacuous right so you can dismantle their talking points pretty easily. Now, that's not necessarily going to change their opinions because these people are extremists and, quite frankly, I think unstable when it comes to a lot of these uh, politicians, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Herschel Walker, among others. But I think that because we can't change their mind doesn't mean that we shouldn't push back and we can change other people's minds who are maybe on the fence. So, yeah, we'll leave that there. Marjorie Taylor Greene ran away from a local, possibly public access television station because... The questions were just too tough. Apparently, again, we know what her spokesperson says, but I don't believe it. At a recent Teletown Hall, Senator Ron Johnson was asked by an attendee who's definitely straight, by the way, about the woke agenda for LGBTQ plus people in schools and how that has led to students using litter boxes in lieu 
of bathrooms. So it's the same conspiracy theory that just will not die. Now, rather than pushing back or even questioning that narrative, Ron Johnson decided to go along with it and claims that he is well aware of this phenomenon. Let's listen. Uh, hi, Senator. Thank you so much for taking our calls. Um, I have to admit that I was a Democrat until 2016 and I saw the light. Um, I just want to say uh, my niece goes to school in West Bend and she's been telling us stories like that other students have been forcing them to have like litter box to accommodate students who identify as cats. I was wondering if you heard about this and if you've seen what Ron DeSantis has done in Florida with his parental Bill of Rights, is that something that you could see happening like on the federal level? Is that something you support? Um, thank you so much for everything you do. Well, first of all, Jeff, thank you for your support. And, and yes, I'm well aware of this. I mean, I think one of the things that COVID did is, is uh, parents were looking over their, their kids' shoulders and they became aware of the indoctrination of our children by radical leftists within our education system. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. I, I just heard on uh, a radio talk show how England, for example, has come out, their National Health Service has come out completely different, different uh, recommendation in terms of transgenderism, saying that this is, this is a phase for children. Don't, don't accommodate the phase. Let's you know, work with them through it. Don't, don't be putting gender-blocking dr drugs in our children and certainly don't mess them with the sex change operations to minors. I mean, this is sick what's happening. But yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that we've got uh, some teachers that are, you know, they're actually, they're pushing this stuff on our kids. I mean, kids are kids. I mean, they, they think weird things. You know, they go through phases. We, any parent knows that. This is exhausting. This is absolutely exhausting. I'll ask the same question that I asked last time when we talked about this. Why hasn't anyone who claims that there are litter boxes in schools provided us with a single shred of evidence. It is like a game of conspiracy theory telephone where one person says something, another person repeats that, and it just keeps on trickling all throughout society. I've played this video now probably like five times on this show. This is the origin of the entire litter box in school bathrooms phenomenon. One lady from Michigan claiming that she heard this with zero evidence. And since then, Libs of TikTok retweeted her video. And every time this is debunked, somebody else sees that video for the first time, I'm assuming. And then they repeat the claim and it just never dies. But this is where it began. It was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that are that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms, a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. And I, I will do some more investigation on that. I know it's going on nationwide. I know it is. It's part of the agenda that's being pushed. I don't, I don't even want to understand it. But I think that people need to be aware of it because I am really upset as a parent that my child is put in an environment like that. And, um, you know, I'm all for creativity and imagination. But when someone lives in a fantasy world and expects other people to go along with it, I have a problem with that. So I'm just putting that out there. I will investigate more. They just hear things and they're like, oh, that's definitely sufficient for me. Now, there were other things that Ron Johnson said besides 
agreeing with that conspiracy theory and pretending as if he's well aware of this common occurring phenomenon in the United States. He cites England's NHS saying that gender dysphoria is probably a phase for children. So the NHS is calling for caution with this new guidance, saying that gender dysphoria usually does not persist into puberty and that they're over it by then. But this goes against the medical consensus. This flies in the face of long-term studies like this one reported on by the New York Times, which found that very few children changed their minds about their gender identity throughout the five years that they were observed, with just 2.5% of the 317 children that they examined reverting back to their gender assigned at birth. Now, not to mention the detransition rate in the UK is incredibly low. For example, one study tracked 3,398 trans people for a year, and out of those people, just 16 expressed regret, which is less than half of a percent. And sure, some expressed regret because they don't like their decision that they made, but others expressed regret citing social factors, i.e. bigotry, meaning that it was difficult for them to live as a trans person because there's so much bigotry. So the detransition rate is incredibly low and overwhelmingly doctors in the UK and the United States are getting their gender dysphoria diagnoses correct. They're already very conservative, but because the NHS put out this guidance, it doesn't necessarily prove anything. It's like Canada saying, oh, well, some red states in the United States have banned gender affirming care for minors. Therefore, that's evidence that maybe we should do that as well. No, what you need to look at is the overwhelming majority of experts and what their opinion is. Sure, you'll find a couple of outliers here and there that claim different things, but the consensus is what you have to go by, and that is what doctors in the United States, the UK, and Canada are all going by when they make these determinations and these diagnoses. So for Ron Johnson to use the new guidelines issued by the NHS as evidence that gender-affirming care is bad is insufficient. But he also said something demonstrably untrue. He said that trans children are getting sex change operations. This is another myth and it's not happening. But one thing that is happening with regard to uh, genital surgeries in the United States is circumcision. More than 50% of male infants are given irreversible surgery on their genitals called circumcision. Maybe you've heard of this. And it's funny how the transphobes, they never bring this up. They talk about how trans children are getting these surgeries on their genitals. That's bad because it's irreversible and they're too young to consent, but yet they say nothing about circumcision, which is also irreversible. And it happens at infancy in many instances where young boys are not old enough to consent. So if you actually care about these surgeries and the consent of the patient, then why not bring up circumcision as well? It's because they don't actually care about anything. They just want to demonize trans people. Now, people who fearmonger about gender affirming care like Ron Johnson, they do so for political reasons, that's number one, but also because they're ignorant and they don't understand or know what gender-affirming care entails. As LGBTQ Nation explains, contrary to Johnson and other Republicans fear-mongering, the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, American Psychological Association, and other major medical mental health organizations all support gender-affirming care for young people when appropriate. This often involves affirming young children's gender identity via social transitioning, and in the case of older youths, the use of reverse puberty blockers to hold off the permanent changes of puberty so that young people have more time to understand their gender identities better. Puberty blockers have been shown to significantly reduce lifelong suicide risk among transgender people. So it's not like, you know, a girl goes to a doctor and the mother says, hey, she's a tomboy, maybe she's trans, and they immediately start social transition. That's not happening. That is not 
happening. That's not the way that this works. And people who are proponents of trans rights like myself wouldn't want that to be the case because that would hurt the cause. If you push transitioning on children and they're not actually experiencing gender dysphoria, then that would lead to a higher detransition rate, which would delegitimize the existence of trans people, which we don't want. So nobody has an interest of pushing people into transgenderism, which is the word that he used there. It's just so preposterous. All we have to do is look at the medical consensus and you'll see what is and isn't appropriate. So Ron Johnson here is fear-mongering about a marginalized population specifically because the GOP has chosen to make this one of their pet issues because this is how they galvanize support. See, Ron Johnson has very unpopular economic policies. He has previously advocated for moving Social Security to part of our discretionary budget so that way you have to reapprove funding for it every single year and you can control how much money you issue out to recipients of social security he has no economic agenda that americans want so this is why he's resorting to these issues because since he can't actually win against his opponent who's the democrat mandela barnes in this election uh, on you know a living wage health care what he has to do is fear monger and punch down that's what's happening here and he's so desperate that he's even willing to legitimize dumbass hoaxes like the litter box myth that we've heard again and again from republicans and it's just embarrassing but understand for people who feel depressed about this this is only one moment in time when we look back 10 years from now things will change that doesn't mean that transphobia will be erased from society but we will see how preposterous the hysteria was when we all look back and laugh at the lengths that people went to demonize trans people, even suggesting that litter boxes were in schools to, uh, I guess, appease cat-identified students. Like, this is something we're all gonna laugh at, but unfortunately, right now, these lies are hurting people, and it's just sad. So just understand, this is just a moment in history, and it will pass. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.